Amen. Good morning, Grace Point. Let's stand as we get into word. Johanna did an amazing job last Sunday. I, I have now had a chance to listen to the message, and it was wonderful. Uh, and uh, emphasized how we belong not only to God, but to one another. Amen. And uh, just so appreciate her. We had her Uncle Tony's uh, uh, celebration of life yesterday, and I know she's got a lot. Uh, going on, but we love and appreciate her, and happy birthday to Johanna, amen, what a blessing she is to this house, amen, bless her one more time, would you do that, all right, uh, Cindy, thank you for what you did during worship, I just want to publicly say it was God, and I needed that, and when you did that, I really the Lord really personally spoke to me something that I needed to hear. Thank you for being obedient and doing that. I love you. Amen. Keep waving them flags, girl. Amen. 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 Uh, Galatians, uh, the book of Galatians, chapter 1. I'm just going to uh, read two verses, verse 6 and 7, and then you can be seated uh, after we pray. Uh, this is the Apostle Paul. I really like that guy, and uh, he's a grace preacher like me, or I'm one like him, I hope to be. Uh, and he is uh, writing his strongest letter, we call them epistles, the Bible calls them epistles, but they're letters written to the different churches, and he comes really quickly out of the, uh, his norm when he's communicating and writing to churches, and he really uh, sternly rebukes, there's no other way of saying it, the church of Galatia. And he's rebuking them because they were established in grace uh, and uh, grace alone. And then later on, they started uh, incorporating, some did, the teachers, the law back into it and requiring other additional things that Paul uh, uh, never did. And so he says in verse 6, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Now, he calls it a different gospel. Uh, and then he says, which is not another. Now, the reason he says that, I believe, is because the gospel means what? What does the word gospel mean? Good news. So Paul is saying that if you've changed it to a different gospel and you've added some things to it, then it's not good news. Good news is just simply good news. Good news is not the mixture of good news and a little bad news added in. So Paul says that, that, that you've, you've, you've changed it to a different gospel, and, uh, which is really not the good news. And that's what he's saying there. But there are some who trouble you, and they want to pervert the gospel of Christ. And he just, I won't read, we, you know, he just really weighs in on that and really rebukes them for doing that. And he actually goes on to say that someone has bewitched you. They've put a spell on you is the way he, he spoke to them. And he was amazed uh, by them. Now, what I uh, have titled this is the greatest story I was never told. And the greatest story that I'm talking about is the gospel. And the gospel is... The story of Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is. And if, it, and if it's not about Jesus, then it's not the gospel, right? And if it's not good news, it's not the gospel. And so this was something, and, and I, don't, I don't mean with, uh, you know, demonic intent, but I was never told this. Now, I've, have, I've discovered this by the help of the Holy Spirit. But I don't know why it took him till I turned 50 to get it to me, really, where I'm starting, starting to get it. Um, but, but I'm going to share, and I have the privilege of sharing the gospel with you today. And I hope I do that every time that you come and, and, and declare to you uh, the good news. Because you, you didn't come here to hear bad news, did you? You could have stayed home, watched TV, and got that. Um, and I'm going to make, I'm going I'm to get to one part if I help me not to forget it, but I, I do want to just at least comment about what's going on. 
uh, based on, it actually is, is what I'm, there's a section that, that that will apply. So Father, thank you again for the privilege uh, to stand before your sheep and feed them. Uh, you commanded us to feed my sheep. And so we want to feed them your word, Father, your undiluted, uncompromised uh, gospel, the story of Jesus. Uh, help me to tell it better than I've ever told it before in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, I, I'm going to share the gospel, and I'm going to share it quickly, and I'm going to do it twice. I'm going to share it the first time uh, the way that it was told to me and the way that I preached it as a young evangelist and as a young pastor. And, uh, and contained in that version, uh, there were aspects of it uh, that the Holy Spirit attended and people heard that version and responded and were saved in spite of me not having it just all figured out. And then I'm going to tell the gospel again in the way that I now have come to see the gospel. Now I'd say to you, which I've used this example several times uh, because months ago now, may have been even a year ago, the way time flies, but both of my grandchildren that live just a few houses down from me, and so that puts them there more often. They're not I don't love them more, they're just at my home more, okay? And, um, and so they both, you know, they like to draw. Uh, little Laddie, she's seven, she spent the whole afternoon drawing yesterday. And uh, she's a poppy's girl now. Mimi was going to town, so Aiden loaded up and went with her. And, and they're going to go to Sam's, and they're going to go to Target, and all those fun places that you just think she would want to, mm -mm, she's staying with her poppy. And... Uh, we stayed home, made a pot of vegetable soup, and colored. And that was a fun day. Uh, but she loves to draw. And so one day they both drew pictures. They said, Papa, we want to draw a picture of you. And they did it with crayons and pencil and so forth. And uh, Aiden is uh, 11. And so he's a little older. And uh, it's not that he draws better, he just draws different. So he drew his picture of, of me and they presented it to me and then first thing they want to know is which one's the best they're always trying to get you to choose which is the better you know deal and of course I'm not I'm not doing that and I said they're both wonderful and I still have them in my desk in my office um, and they're precious to me but to me neither one of those drawings of me looks like me in the slightest way. If I just saw that, nobody would say, well, that's Pastor Dale. But you, you wouldn't. But from their perspective and with their ability, they did their best to draw me. And did I rebuke them for it? No, I, I accepted it. I received it. And I blessed them. And, and, it, and it touched my heart. Now, if you can receive this, uh, that's the way it is with any preacher and any of us. We, we're drawing what we think God looks like with our religious crayons, so to speak. But when you present that to Papa, he receives it, even though you ain't got it right. And I think it is the epitome of religious arrogance to assume that your version of what you think God is like is the correct one. Is that okay? I, I, that's, I just think that's ridiculous that we would... We would think that we have now arrived, regardless of our age, at some position of now we know what God's like and my version and my telling is the only way that it is and everybody else is wrong. I mean, do we really think that way? Can I say to you, I, I probably used to think that way. I thought I had it figured out. I thought I knew, you know, what it, what it was like. I mean, my goodness, I've got... Two degrees, I got honorary doctorate in systematic theology, I've been to school, I've been educated, I, I mean, come on. And it has been my trade, and I've had the privilege that most of you have not had over the years, I don't have that much time now, like I used to, but I used to have just devoted 100% time to, to, to doing what people would call ministry, and the Word, and studying the Bible, and, and I've done it for, for you know, 
50, 60, uh, 50, over 50, just say 50 years to be safe. 50 years. And yet sometimes, you know, if I put out a blog or stuff like that, and I don't have a lot of time to even do that anymore, but if I do that, then it's amazing that you have, and I don't mean this mean, but you've got people that's never even hardly even went to church. They don't ever read the Bible. They, they think they know something, and, they, and they'll write, and they'll bash you. That, that's like you, you know, you, you, you picked up an article one time and read a journal out of the Journal of, of American Medical Journal, and there you, sh- you, you cut down a doctor that has spent years studying, you know, and got a doctorate degree, and you, you think you know something, and you, you're cutting him down. You see how ridiculous that is? And so that's what you get in ministry. And so I know a lot of people have not had the opportunity to spend as much time as I have had in the Word. And I don't mean that, well, I'm some theologian, but I'm, you know, I've been at this a while. And, and, and our understanding of God should always be growing in faith, the Bible says, growing in wisdom and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We're always growing. We're coming into more understanding. Hopefully, that's what the Holy Spirit does. And, and I, I think, matter of fact, we'll spend eternity doing that. I don't think when you get to heaven, you're going to go, well, I got it all figured out. And no, it's not going to be that way. I mean, God is God. And, and so, so we, we don't need to refresh the gospel message, I mean the gospel, because the gospel is the story of Jesus. But what we do need to refresh is how we tell it. Because how you tell it and the people you tell it to is is extremely important. And so again, so here I come today with my box of Crayolas, and I'm going to do my best to draw Jesus for you. And uh, as I see him today, and I hope a year from now I'll see him even more clearly. And no aspects and, and aspects of him that, that I don't know uh, now. But, but, but this is how I used to share the gospel as a young evangelist and then as a pastor. And, and then I want you to see the contrast uh, between the two. And, and I hope that it helps. Now, I was in, in the, when I say the East, I'm talking about East in regard to the world. I mean, you know, and so the East is Middle East where a lot of trouble is going on right now. Uh, and when I say the West, I'm talking about America and the, the Americas and North America and South America. That's what I'm talking about, okay, uh, just as an understanding. But in the, in the Western view of, of church and theology, uh, we have primarily, and I've said this before, a judicial view of God. We see a courtroom scene. We see God as the judge. We see Jesus as the lawyer, our lawyer. Uh, we see... Uh, uh, the devil as the prosecutor, if you will. And we see sin primarily as law-breaking. And we see sin must be punished in order to be forgiven. In other words, we don't think it just can be forgiven. There has to be some price paid. There has to be some punishment uh, uh, given uh, for the sin in order for it to be forgiven. And that's the, really the metaphor that, that uh, the, the Western church kind of, we all kind of grew up on that. And you, and you know that's true. In Eastern Orthodox, uh, they, they've never had that baseline as a metaphor. They know that God uh, sits on a throne of grace. And uh, that's the name of his throne, grace. And grace is favor, not earned. And so, uh, it, so the metaphor there and it should be ours, and it is mine now, is this is more of a hospital uh, uh, metaphor. In other words, uh, sin is, is not simply law-breaking, and, and, and sin is not dealt with or eradicated by punishment. So uh, sin is far worse than just simply breaking God's law. Sin is a fatal, terminal disease that, that needs healing. And so God doesn't come to us as a judge uh, as much as he comes to us as a great physician. And he comes with healing and he delivers us from the toxic, fatal condition of sin uh, that, 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 that this world was subjected to. And so, uh, but, and, and it's not about punitive or retaliation or retribution or punishment with God, because if you have a fatal disease, you cannot punish that out of someone. You cannot spank a fever out of a child. You can incarcerate somebody and keep them in jail long enough that their cancer will go away. 
You can't discipline, punish, beat a disease out of a person. It's ridiculous. What they need is not punishment. Uh, they, they don't, what they need is a healer. And they need Jesus. And, and so that's really uh, the, the, the metaphor. And so the, the way that we share it. And, and so in my first telling, uh, I'm going to tell you kind of how it was told to me. But so this is how it goes. Uh, you know, God creates Adam and Eve. He puts them in the garden. And he warns them now. He warns them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And uh, in that garden, of course, is the tree of life. But there's also this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He warns them, don't eat of this tree. And he says, in the day that you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. Now, my hearing of it, and it could have been not so much the person telling it to me, but it could have been I had faulty hearing. But the way I almost heard that was that, that God was really behind all of that in the sense that in the day you break my rule and you eat of this tree, I'm going to kill you. Now, nobody didactically said that to me, but it was the impression that I got that God's behind this. If you break my rule, you're going to die. And I'm the one that said it, and I'm the one that controls it. So they do what? They break his law. They break his rule. They are disobedient, and they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so that uh, they incur God's wrath, his anger, his displeasure, whatever you want to call it. Uh, God kicks them out of the garden. I grew up hearing that all the time. God put them out. He kicked them out. I used to hear preachers tell the joke, and I used it a few times in my younger ministry. I don't do it no more because it's not a good joke. But, I, you know, preacher said, you know, it, it, Adam and Eve, they're living on the other side of the river now, and they got sons and daughters, and, and one of the sons looks across and he said, well, what's that place over there that we can't even get to anymore? And he said, well, that's where we used to live, son, until your mama eat us out of house and home. Sorry, ladies, I don't believe that, but I told you it was a bad joke. I grew up hearing that, okay? Y'all messed up. The men said it was really the woman. If it hadn't been for y'all, we'd still be naked and eating grapefruit and naming bugs. But, you know, here, here we go. And God kicked them out, and he placed angels with flaming swords, and so man couldn't get back in there. And then now, and I was taught in systematic theology that, that God's, from that moment, God's primary disposition towards man was enmity. Now, what does enmity mean? It means an enemy. God became our enemy. God turned his face from us. God can't look at us anymore because we're sinners. So God turns his back to us. And, 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 and now, because he's holy and we're not, then we are separated from God. And that our sin has separated us from God, and our sin particularly has caused God to separate himself from us, because now we're sinners and he's holy. And so, uh, but now what God does is he uh, sends his son in the predicament. Now God would try to make covenants with people and, and uh, Abraham and David and you know, all that, and Isaac and Jacob, and they would always break the covenants and it just didn't go well. And so then God sends his son, Jesus. And so Jesus comes, and, uh, and, and him who knew no sin, Jesus, becomes sin. And when Jesus became sin and was put on the cross, then once he became sin, because God is so holy, God turned his face from Jesus. Uh, God turned his back upon his own son. God forsook him, in fact, on the cross when him who knew no sin became sin. And God in that moment poured out all of his wrath upon his son, uh, Jesus Christ. And Jesus paid the price because there had to be some appeasement or we would use the word atonement. And God's anger and wrath and God's enmity position with man had to be satisfied. And it required blood sacrifice in order for that to uh, happen. And that's taught in theological circles as substitutionary penal atonement. And it is widely believed by most of the church. And it did not even exist, and you will not ever find any hint of it in Eastern Orthodox where the Bible was written and came from. And you will only find it when John Calvin came along. And it's really a recent view, and it's only about 500, 600 years old. 
But the church, particularly the church in the West, America, gobbled it up and have been preaching it ever since. And so if you believe that Jesus did all of that for you, and that's how I preached it, then if you'll believe that and you'll turn to God and repent of your sin, then this God that is in a enmity position, disposition rather with you, if you turn to him, then he will respond to your turning and now he will turn to you. And he will accept you and bring you into his family. You'll be his kid and he'll be your, your, your father and so forth. And, and so, and, but if you don't, you know, I don't even want to tell you what's going to happen to you if you don't. Because that's really bad, and there's a lot of threatening that, and this is what it's going to do to you. Uh, but, uh, but hey, that don't have to happen to you. Just believe and accept Jesus. And that's the way I preached it. And that's the way I told the gospel. <clears throat> I need to get a drink after that telling of the gospel. Anybody see any flaws with that version? It's okay. You don't have to say it. Uh, if you come here, you know you do. So... That was the version. That's what I was uh, told. And so that's what I taught. That's what I preached. And, uh, and, and so there's some really problems that I begin to see because I have this problem of reading my Bible often. And as I would continue to read it, then I would find in places I read that it went contradictory to my telling of the gospel. And it didn't line up. And that's very confusing when you've gotten a bachelor's degree in that telling of it. But it's not right. And so I begin to question things in my own mind and in my own heart. And then when I became thoroughly convinced and persuaded, like the Apostle Paul said, then I began to preach it and bring those glitches into proper biblical alignment. First one I saw was that it that first telling, that puts God at enmity with man. And is that really true? Is that what the Bible teaches? Is, is that what the Bible says? Uh, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. Colossians uh, chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. Colossians, and I could go to many places, and I could make this the whole sermon. But I'm just going to give you a couple. In Colossians, Paul writing in verse uh, 21 of the first chapter, and he said, and you... Everybody say me, because you're the you. And you who once were alienated and enemies, where? In your what? In your mind. You've only been an enemy of God, not because you were God's enemy, but you saw God as your enemy. You thought God didn't like you because some, somebody told you that. But Paul said that you were enemies in your mind because you, you were doing wicked works Yet now he has reconciled. Not he will reconcile if you pray the right prayer. This ain't got nothing to do with you. God said, I'm going to handle this. I'm going to reconcile you. And how did he do it? In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Isn't that wonderful? Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this is one I refer to often. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 18 and 19. Now it says, now all things are of God. Now he's talking about what all things, the things he's talking about. Who has, notice again, we got reconciliation being placed in past tense, not future tense. Who has reconciled us to what? Himself. Notice the direction of reconciliation. God is not reconciling himself to us, but he's reconciling us to himself. That is critical that you see that. And that what, that's what caused me to question this thing that I was taught, that God's primary position, that was the doctrinal statement, that God's primary disposition towards mankind after the garden and sin was enmity. And that he was at enmity and that our sinning and now having become sinners by sinning, therefore has made God had to turn his face from us and now we are separated, cut off, estranged. And then they draw the little pictures. So they put man over here, and then they draw a big cavern and a big gap, and then they put God over here. And there has to be something to bridge that gap 
because you are separated from God and you've always been separated from God and you're not back with God until you pray the prayer and you better be sure to pray the right prayer, you know, the sinner's prayer. You know that prayer that's not in the Bible? That prayer is the one they want you to pray. It's not in the Bible and nobody in the Bible got saved by saying a sinner's prayer because it don't exist. Hallelujah. Welcome to church. We're so glad you're here. And this is where religious people get extremely nervous. And when the Philippian jailer was in jail, and you know this one in Acts 16, and asked the great Apostle Paul, what must I do to be saved? The Apostle said, like all good preachers in South Georgia do, close your eyes, bow your head, repeat after me. Lord, I am a sinner, and I need a son. No, that ain't what he did, did he? I don't know if you just want plain Bible. But I'm tell you how easy it is. Paul responded to this heathen, centurion, unbeliever when he asked the question, what I, what I need to do to get saved? He said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And not only you, but your whole house will get saved. Any other questions? See how easy it is? And we've made it so religious and so hard. Because in order to get saved, you've got to come to our church. You've got to pray our prayer. You've got to do it like we said. You've got to be baptized. And if you get baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, then you're baptized. If you get named, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then that's wrong. You're going to go to hell because we didn't baptize you because you've got to come to our church and use our water. Oh, Lord, I can't stand religion. Uh, so what it says is, verse 18 again, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself. How do you do it? Through Jesus Christ. And he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That's what I'm preaching today because that's the ministry I have. I have been given the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ. When Jesus was on the cross, God was in Christ. He wasn't in heaven with his back turned. God was in Christ. What was he doing? Reconciling. Look here again. The world to who? To himself. Notice it does not say that God was in Christ reconciling himself to the world. Because why? God's never separated himself from you or the world. He has always been with you, for you, and in you. You have never been separated from God except in your religious telling of the wrong story. And that was not true. But if you believe you're separated from God, you will live like you're separated from God. And you will pray or not pray like you're separated from God. And you will think every bad thing is happening because you're separated and you're cut off and all these things that people threaten you with. God, I wish I'd have known this when I was 20. I'd have been heaven on wheels, you know what I'm saying, for people. But he has reconciled the world to himself. How did he do that? Not imputing their trespasses to them. Your sin account has a zero balance. God's not writing down. God's not Santa Claus. He's not looking and seeing who's naughty and nice, keeping a list. And if you be good, you'll get a present. You'll get a blessing. God's not Santa Claus. He doesn't keep a list. He doesn't keep up with who's naughty and nice. He's taken away the sin of the world. Your sin account, God's not writing down none of your sins. God's not relating to you based on sins, even yours. He's relating to you based on his son, even his. Not imputing the trespass of them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation, again, which I'm preaching to you right now. So the second thing I saw that was a glitch and a problem in the way I told the gospel was that it said God turned his face from Jesus. I just never could get over that. How could God turn his face upon, you know, away from Jesus and, and, and forsake him? And, 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 he, and he did it when he needed him the most, when he was dying on the cross. And, 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 and he did it because God, you know, they told me he's so holy, he can't look at sin, he's too holy. And, and is that true? Is that true? And where do we get this from? Is that what the Bible really teaches? Well, where we got it from is out of the Bible. But a, a wrong reading of the Bible. The prophet Habakkuk, uh, chapter 1, verse 13, 
Now, he, Habakkuk's going through a whole lamentation, and he's just really complaining about how bad stuff is. I don't know if you've ever had a day like that, but this prophet that wrote Habakkuk is having one of those days. And he's looking at a bunch of heathens and sinners, and he's not happy with what he's seeing, and he wants God to step in there and straighten some folks out and get this thing back on track. And he's ticked off. A lot of prophets are not prophets. They're, they're just people that didn't get their coffee and they're angry. Amen. They really are. I used to go to one church and when I was an evangelist, and I, just about every time I'd go, this guy would bust off in tongues, and I believe in, in tongues as long as it's the Holy Spirit, not you. And, this, and I don't know, this guy, the pastor told me this guy wanted to impress me every time I'd come preach for him. He guessed, he said, because he don't do that unless you come. And so this guy would bust off in tongues, you know, and I believe in that. And then he would immediately follow it with his own interpretation or translation or whatever you want to call it. And, uh, and boy, man, every time God spoke up at that church, God was mad. And, and, and I leaned up, and that's back when one of the churches, you know, when they had the benches and the throne chairs, we'd sit in and look at y'all while I'm waiting to preach. Y'all remember them? And it, it was that kind of deal. And I leaned over to the pastor. And this has been about the third time I was up there and this guy did this. I said, I don't believe that brother got his coffee this morning. I was not impressed with all his Shundai's, Kawasaki's, and Zazuka's that he spilled out. And then declared that God was mad and was judging everybody. And God about to bring judgment in there. And it was about to be a funeral. Hallelujah. Welcome to Sunday morning church at that church. And I told the pastor, I said, you need to, you need to reel that guy in. Because ain't nothing he said right there was God. And just because he said, thus saith the Lord, duh, that don't mean the Lord's saying it. Because God's not mad. I've read that now, and I know that, and I knew it then. And he's mad, and he's like Habakkuk. And Habakkuk was mad. And Habakkuk says to God, verse 13, you are of pure eyes and behold evil. Well, right there it is in the Bible. It says God's of pure eyes. God can't look at evil. Well, how about reading the rest of the verse? You are of pure eyes and behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Uh-oh. He says he can't look on wickedness. This is Habakkuk's view of God. Your eyes are too pure, behold evil. You can't look on wickedness. And then he says, next sentence, why do you? Why do you look on those who deal truth? He says, you can't do it, but why do you? Read the rest of the verse. All I was ever told was the Bible says that God's so holy he can't look upon wickedness. And I'm like, well, Habakkuk went on to say, well, why do you? Why do you do it? Look on those who deal treasurely and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he. First off, Habakkuk has some real theological problems here. He sees one person as, I'm super righteous, I'm 100% righteous. This other dude over here, he's only 75% righteous, and you're blessing him more than you are the person that's 90%. And by the way, I'm the 90% righteous. And this, you see, righteousness is gift, Paul said in Romans. And how righteous are they? It's righteous Jesus, and there's no degrees of righteousness. It's like pregnant. You either is or you ain't. You ain't a little pregnant. You're not a little righteous. You're not some righteous. I'm partly righteous. I'm headed that way. No, you're not. You were gifted the position of righteousness by Jesus Christ. And whose righteousness did he give you? Your churches? Your grandmamas? <laughs> no. Jesus' righteousness is your gift. Amen? And so then I was told that, well, you know, your sin has separated you, and the Bible says your sin has separated you, you know, God from you. Now, if you ask me the question, if you says, does your sin separate God from you? My immediate answer is absolutely not. If you question and reverse the question, and if you ask me, does uh, my sin or does a person's sin separate you from God? I would say probably. Most people that are full force active sinning ferociously are not sitting in churches. Because they don't think God likes that, and he'd be mad with them anyway, so they just don't go. Right? Uh, Isaiah 59 is where we got that from. So in other words, we got this wrong teaching out of the Bible. Isaiah 59, verse 1 and 2. I want you to see verse 1, because the prophet here says, Behold, the Lord's hand, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Now that sounds real hopeful, don't it? 
He says, don't worry about God. Don't, don't even think God can't save. Because his hand's not shortened. Nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. In other words, I can save and I hear your prayer. Is that what it's saying? I mean, anybody can see that. And then he says, but your iniquities, which is another word for sin, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Notice what it does not say. It does not say your iniquities have separated God from you. You've got to learn to read the Bible correctly. And don't misquote it. God has never, nor will he ever, separate himself from you. He says, and your sins, your sins, have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Now, is the Bible sitting there telling me that if I've got sin, he's separated from me and he won't hear my prayer? No, he just said in the verse above, my hand is not shortened that I cannot save and my ear is not too heavy that I can't hear you when you pray. He says, but in your own mind, you think that your sins have cut you off because you went to the wrong church and listened to the wrong preacher. And you've been told all your life that you've been cut off, separated. Your sins have separated you from a holy God. God's so holy you can't look at sin. And you're cut off and you're separated. And then you live separated feeling and you feel you're separated. And you act like you're separated and you sin like you're separated. And that was all not true. And I'm so upset that I was never told the true story. That God has never separated himself. And that's very easily proven in the Bible. So... And, and, and by the way, let me ask you this. When Jesus came to earth, did he cease to be God? When Jesus came to earth, was he still Emmanuel? Which means what? God with us. So you're telling me, theologically, that you believe that Jesus Christ was God. Right? He was always God. He was God laying in a manger. He was God at 12 years old. He was God at 30 at his baptism service. And he was God when he hung on the cross. That's sound theology. And to say that God turned his back on his son, who is God. For we have one God manifested in three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And the only way that God could ever turn his back upon his Son was that, that they had to be a separation of the Trinity. And that is the rankest heresy. That is non-Christian to even suggest that the Trinity, the oneness of God was broken or dissected or separated. It's ridiculous. And when Jesus came to earth, who was God in the flesh... Did he not hang out with sinners? Was he not accused of being a friend of sinners? Did he not go to their parties? Did he not hang out with them? Did he not talk to them? Fellowship with them? Well, apparently God is not separated from sin, nor sinners. Because he hung out with them. So, you see how all that falls apart? Yet in my first telling and how I was taught, that's what I was taught. That's what I preached. I no longer preach that now because the Bible is extremely clear that that's not true. And so uh, then where do we get this then that God turned his back on his son? Again, we get it from the Bible. In fact, we get it from Jesus' own mouth. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said that from the cross. So that's where we get it. Well, Jesus said God forsook him. Did he? Is that what Jesus said? So wh where's that at? Psalm 22, verse 1. Psalm 22 is an amazing, beautiful psalm. And the whole 22nd psalm is a messianic, prophetic description of the crucifixion with detail. And it begins in verse 1 and it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? Is that not exactly what Jesus said from the cross? And it says, why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Now, this was a cry for help that God answered. This was not a theological statement on God's disposition towards his son. And by the way, if you read the whole 22nd Psalm, it will say that the bulls have surrounded me. Was it really bulls around him or was there people around him? He said he's become like a worm. Did Jesus transform into a physical worm? 
Oh, so all the literalists are going to have a real problem. But it does say, his, he said, they have pierced my hands and my feet. It says all of my bones are visible. I can count them. It says my joints are dislocated. My tongue cleaves to the roof of my mouth. He says very detailed. He says they divide my garments. It was very detailed. But the problem is that we only read what we want to read that backs up what we think we know. And so this cry from Jesus was not a cry that his father had forsook him, but it was a cry for help that God answered. And if you read verse 24, Psalm 22, verse 24, it says, this is what it says. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not done that. He has not hidden his face from him. It says in the Bible that God would not hide his face from him. Yet preachers all over America preach it all the time that God turned his face from his son for you. And they're not telling you the truth. God would no more turn his face from his son than he would turn his face from you. God has never forsook a person. He has never turned against a sinner. He has never done that. And he never will. And if you're here that's got to be great news for you to hear. And don't ever think that you're ever alone and you're in this world and you're in your pain and you're in your struggle and you're in your sickness or you're in your disease or you're in your trauma and that God don't care and He's not with you. He's on that road with you. He's in there with you. He's for you. He loves you. He will never forsake you. He promised in His Word, I will never, never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. I will go with you all the way, even to the end of the world. Glory to God. He will never leave you. Never will He leave you. Never. And you've got to believe that and know that deep in your gut and in your heart. And when hell comes at you, you stand there and you stand there and say, I'm not alone in this. I'm not in this battle by myself. He is my conqueror. He is my healer. He is my deliverer. He is my high tower. He is my refuge. He is my answer. He is my blessing. He is. He is. And always will ever be. Glory. Hallelujah. Don't you ever believe that lie. He said, he has not hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him, Papa heard. He heard him. And that's all it meant. And, And by the way, when you're being crucified... And I have read the American Journal of Medicine's document that you could Google and read for yourself. Crucifixion is the most horrendous, torturous execution of a human. And they're hanging there, and every breath is a struggle. That's why they wanted to break their legs because the only way a person could breathe according to them is when you're crucified they would have to push up on that nail that went through their feet to get a breath. And then as the weight of their body come back and hung it cuts off their diaphragm and every breath is such a pain to even get a breath. Jesus has been crucified Could we not allow him not to have to quote to us, which I'm sure he knew, the whole 22nd Psalm, since he can't breathe? Can he just quote the first verse and say, this is what's happening right now in front of your eyes? Could y'all go home and just read the rest of it because I'm having a real hard time breathing right now? Could he just push you off from shore and get you started and say, I, don't, I know you don't know what's going on, my children. You don't know what's happening right now. But my papa anticipated this moment and he saw this day would come. And so you, this is what I want you to do is I want you to remember this messianic promise of this afflicted one who hangs upon the tree. It's me. This is what's happening. This is what's going on. 
try to make him quote the whole 22nd Psalm when he can't hardly even breathe. The way I tell the story now is God created Adam and Eve. He put them in the garden. He warned them, don't eat of the tree of knowledge, good and evil. Because this is not about good and evil. It's not really about right or wrong. It's about life or death. Choose life. Don't choose death. He said it as a, a, a father that loves his kids. He places them in the garden. They disobey. They choose death. They believe the lie of the enemy. Listen to the wrong person. Believe the wrong thing. And made a wrong decision. Like many of us have done in our lives. At times. What does God do? If he's holy and can't look at sin, then surely he can't come back to earth and talk with them no more because now they are sinners. Nobody disputes that. But what does God do? He comes looking for his kids. What are they doing? Hiding in fear from Papa. He calls out to them by name, Adam, Adam, where are you? And he finds him hiding. And he says, what are you doing, son? Why are you hiding? He said, uh, we saw that we were naked and I was afraid. God said, who you been listening to? Who told you you were naked? Who told you that you're not my son anymore because you sinned? Who told you that I don't like you no more? Who told you that you now have to hide from me when yesterday we walked together and now you're hiding? I didn't change. You changed your view of me. And by the way, what are you wearing? What's these new clothes you have on? This is our attempt to solve our own problem, and we made ourselves garments of fig leaves. Hmm. You know it's going to be extremely temporary, and it's not going to work very well, but you go ahead and create you a religion to solve your problem, but it will not work. i tell you what I'll do. I'm going to make garments for you to cover yourself, since that seems to be an issue for you. And I'm going to cover you. And by the way, you're going to have to get out of here now because in this horrible condition that you've now embraced death, uh, you got to leave here because there's a tree of life in here. And you're my kids, and I'm not going to allow this horrible situation to be permanent with you. So you got to go. And I'm going to place angels outside the gate here with flaming swords. And they're going to keep the way, which is what the Bible says, back to the tree of life for you. And you'll come back again in here and you will eat of the tree of life and you will live forever. Because you're my kids and I'm not going to accept anything any less than for you to eternally be with me. And so we, you got to go. And I, I don't hate you or nothing. And I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to go with you into this broken world. And I'm going to be with you. And I'm going to always be for you. So let's go. And they go. And Adam and Eve have kids. And they have two sons, Cain and Abel. And even before Cain does something extremely stupid, God sees it. And he's having weird thoughts about how to worship God. And he's mad because his brother seems like... His worship went off a little better than his. And God comes to him, this sinner, because they're born in sin now, right? So God comes to Cain and says, hey, what's going on with you? You got weird thoughts going on about your brother. And uh, so uh, God says, listen to me. Sin is crouching at the door, and it desires to have you. Don't yield to it, but resist it. Okay? Okay, buddy. What does Cain do? He doesn't listen. He doesn't heed the warning. He rises up in the field, murders his brother Abel. God comes again and talks to now a murderer. He says, what is this that you've done, my son? And he said, what are you talking about? He said, your brother's blood cries from the ground to me. What have you done? And uh, he said, where is your brother? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? God says, no, you're not. But you're his brother. 
I've never said you were your brother's keeper. You're his brother. You murdered your brother. And brothers have been murdering each other ever since. And they're doing it on the news now. Brothers. They just don't know they're brothers. And so he says, my punishment is going to be too great. Somebody's going to kill me now because I killed my brother. What does God do? I'm not going to let that happen. He puts some type of mark, patriarchal mark upon him that he would not be murdered. And God protects a murderer. Apparently he can hang out with sinners. Apparently he still talks to them and listens to their prayers. And then we go to Abraham. And God makes covenant with this guy who lives in the Ur of the Chaldees, which is the Palestinian area and all in that whole region now where all this is going on. And God makes him a promise and a covenant promise, and he gives him a promise of even land. And he said, your, your seed, his son's going to be like the sand on the seashore, like the stars in heavens. Why don't you come outside and look and see if you can count them? I'm going to bless your socks off, man. And he said, well, how can I be blessed? I don't even have a kid. And I'm... 75 years old, my wife's 65. This, you know, how can this be? God said, this seed will come from you, son. Don't worry about that. And so years go by and years go by and it doesn't happen. And so now they're trying to move outside of the will and plan of God and help God out because God's too slow, right? So when they left Egypt one time, part of the people that not only did Abraham get made rich by the Pharaoh there, he got all these blessings, but he also got slaves was given to him. And one of those slaves was an Egyptian woman named Hagar. And uh, so when Abraham looks around and says, how are we going to have a baby? You know, I'm old. I look at my wife. She's getting on up there. She's done past childbearing age. She ain't going to have no kid. And I don't know who brought it up initially, but anyway, they all come up with a plan. How about Hagar? Well, she's young and perky and pretty, and let's just get her. Abraham, like, okay. <laughs> do, do you realize that that's like sexual battery? When you take a person that's in slavery and you force them to do that, right? And so they have relations. She gets pregnant. She has a son. His name is Ishmael. Abraham begs God, let it be Ishmael for the promise. And God says, no, I told you it's going to come from your seed. You guys have really screwed things up here now because you've jumped in here with your own child of the flesh and you've really messed things up. But I, what I said is what I said. It's going to come from your seed. And a year later, then Sarah gets pregnant and Isaac whose name means laughter, was born. Now Isaac is growing up, and he has an older brother now that's almost 10 years older than him. And he's the firstborn, Ishmael, and he wants all the blessing, which is rightly, really, to the firstborn. But he's really not the firstborn under God's plan. He's the firstborn under man's interfering with God's plan. And Sarah says, my wrong be upon you. So now she's blaming her husband with it. I know you enjoyed it. Now we got all this trouble, and I saw Ishmael picking on Isaac, and they got to go. And you get her and your love child and kick them out of here. And that's what happened. And they, and they make her leave, and she's sitting under a tree crying. Ishmael's mama, Hagar, and the angel of the Lord comes. What does God do? He loves on her. He says, listen, sorry all this happened to you. But I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless that boy. And out of him will 12 princes come, and they'll be a powerful nation. But they're going to be a violent people, and their hand will be against their brother, and their brother's hand will be against them, which is what you're watching right now on the news. Because from those people from Ishmael, it comes to Palestinians. And this is where all of this started. But yet in spite of that, God has always promised and renewed that covenant each time with Israel for that land. Now the thing I'm trying to get you to see without being political. And I've read on Facebook and I've seen people go back ferociously. And they both claim to be Christians in one. And it's like we hate the Palestinians and we love Israel. And we stand with Israel. But you know what, what we need to do. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble here. This ain't no way to talk about it without getting in trouble. But, but I don't care. God still says love your enemies. God is against war. 
and against violence and against murder and against any of that, no matter who's doing it to whom. God, the, God's children are the Jews, but God's children are also the Palestinians. God still loves everybody. We're to love everyone. We are to hate the violence. Israel has every right to defend their land just as much as the United States has the right to defend our land. They have the right and the privilege. Just like I have the right and the privilege to defend my home. You break in my house, you're going to get to meet Jesus quickly. <laughs> that may bother you. I don't mean that arrogantly. I just mean I would, if it came to life, now if you just come in and want my TV, get my TV, brother, and go. But now don't, mess, don't, try, to, don't try to murder my wife or me and my children because then I'm going, with God's help, I'm going to go Samson on you. And Samson got a jawbone. I got a Glock 40. <laughs> Mine will go further, faster. And I don't mean that. I just would, I, I, I believe I would give my life in the protection of my wife and my children. I don't care about my TV. I don't care about my stuff. If you come in and you so hyped up and you just need to pawn something, get you something, brother. Yeah, here's you a couple hundred dollars. Just get out of my house now. But if we ain't got time to have that conversation, Then I'm going to preach Jesus to you quickly. <laughs> Palestinians are God's kids. I hate what I've seen on the news. What little bit I've watched. Heartbreaking. Heart-wrenching. Keeps you up at night if you think about it. Those precious people. All of them. And there's many innocent people caught in the crossfire of all that stuff. And the atrocities and the murders and the torture stuff. I mean, God hates all of that. And we do. And we hate it. And God's not for that. And he's not behind it. And a bunch of people are coming. But it all started with Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac and those battling for the same property and the same standing with God. And, 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 and it's really clear. God keeps reaffirming the covenant. He did it to Isaac. He, he visits Jacob. And he reaffirms the covenant that he said I made with your grandpa. And, and that covenant's still in force. And these are the land that I promised you. And, and it's still yours. And, and he wrestled with God. And that's where Israel came from. And they've been Israel ever since. Well, there wasn't even a nation until 1948. There's always been in that covenant promise. And we can like it or lump it. I mean, you know, God's the one did it. And then Joshua comes along and God reaffirms the boundaries and so forth. And, and they've been fighting over it ever since. And they will be doing it, if we're still here, a hundred years from now. They've always fought. And they will always fight. And the Bible foresaw it and predicted it. And then we come to David. And God makes a covenant with David. And God says, I'm even going to sit on the throne of David forever. But David likes hot tubs and women in them. And David uses his power to force a woman that he watches bathe to come to the palace. And again, you would be charged with sexual assault today if something like that happened. And David takes her. There's no place in there that says she acquiesced to it or was even a willing participant. I suspect she was not. She was married. She had a home and a husband. David had her husband murdered tried to cover it all up because she had gotten pregnant in their relationship. And uh, what does God do? She has a son named Solomon. And Solomon, this God is so relentless in his love. He said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring my Messiah, my son, through the lineage of Solomon. And I'm going to let Solomon be the next king of Israel. And if you read Matthew chapter 1, even though she's not mentioned by name other than she was the wife of the one who was married to Uriah, her husband, before David had him killed. But this woman, this woman Bathsheba, is in the lineage, chronological lineage in Matthew 1 of the birth of Jesus. That's an amazing thing. And then we come into the New Testament and God sends this son, Jesus he comes to be one of us so that he can save us from us. And he sees a guy named Zacchaeus. He is a sinner, sure enough. He has gotten in bed with all the evil going on, uh, stealing money, taxing his people, taking advantage. Jesus sees him in a tree, and he's got a little 
short man thing going on. Jesus says, man, I want to come and be your friend, bro. I want to come eat with you. That shocked the fire out of everybody. They couldn't believe it. He goes in there and he's so touched by Jesus' heart and experience with Jesus. He said, I'm going to give back four times what I took and give half my money to the poor. And, and man, I just, want, I, just, I just want this thing to be right. And, and Jesus said, this day salvation is coming to your house, man. And then he finds this woman at the well. She's a Samaritan woman who racial things called the Jews to hate the Samaritans, but Jesus didn't care. He was born Jew, but he was the papa of all nations. And he sees this woman, and he starts talking to her, and you know the story. And, and uh, he told her, you've had five husbands, and, and, and if you've heard me teach this, a woman could not divorce a man for any reason in those times. So that means she was divorced five times by men, probably because she was barren and couldn't have kids. But that day, uh, Jesus loves her, uh, says, you're just... You're not promiscuous, you're not a harlot, you're just a thirsty woman. And you don't even know what you're thirsty for, but you're thirsty for me, living water. And I'm going to give you a drink of this water, and when you drink of this water, you're going to never thirst again. How about that, girl? And she grabbed hold, run to the city, started evangelizing right off the bat. After that, church tradition says that she was not only moved so in touch by evangelism, she got healed that day, probably of her barrenness, and she got married. And she had two sons. This is all in church history. She had two sons, and she evangelized as an evangelist the whole Samaritan people. And she was so successful and so powerful with her testimony of meeting Jesus at the well that she goes to Rome now and, and, and evangelizes in Rome. And everywhere she goes, what story do you think she tells about the man that she met at the well? Well, Nero, who was a vicious demonic leader, hears of this woman. He sends and has her brought to his, to the throne. And he questions her. He didn't like anything had to do with Christians. And he was torturing Christians. He was doing all kinds of horrible things to Christians. And so she comes to, before him and she tells Nero, just like Paul did before Agrippa and Felix, she, she tells Nero her story, her testimony of how she met Jesus and what he did for her. And Nero commanded her to denounce her faith. She would not. And when she would not, he sentenced her to death. And he said, the way I'm going to kill you is I'm going to have you thrown down a dry well. And that's how she died. He thought that was very apropos that her execution would be by a well, be thrown into a well, because she wouldn't shut up about the well. So you will die in a well. She was thrown to her death. And in Eastern Orthodox, she is venerated as a saint. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, in the Catholic Church, and there's holidays. Four days after Passover is a holiday. People in the, in the Eastern Orthodox, on her celebration day, they stand in the streets and they give water to people in remembrance of the water that was given to her that day. And she is venerated, and, and, and you can read about it on Google. It's an amazing uh, story, and it's on Wikipedia. I mean, everybody knows about her. And, uh, but we don't know much about her beyond that little occurrence. And this is the impact that Jesus had on that woman who never ceased to give her testimony, and she evangelized everywhere she went. And even it cost her death. She would not relent, and she wouldn't stop talking. And Jesus goes to the cross. He takes on our wickedness. And when we say that Jesus paid the price, I hope you know what it means. When a military person dies in battle, it is not uncommon to say they paid the ultimate price. Is that right, Ron? They'll say they paid the ultimate price. They gave the greatest sacrifice. But that does not mean that soldier was atoning for some blood-linting, appeasing some force or entity. It just means he gave his life in sacrifice to save others. And so when we say Jesus paid the price, he was not having to appease an angry father. But he simply gave his life. He took on everything we could throw at him. And what did he, how did he respond? Father, forgive him. He forgave. He didn't, he didn't uh, repay. He didn't call for angels to torture people. He didn't do any of that. He forgave. 
He's always been forgiven. Long before he went to the cross, he would say, you are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. You, he did it. It was not that they had to be some kind of blood linting. Yeah, he shed his blood. But Jesus sacrificed his life on a cross because that's what we did to him. And we gave him death and torture, and he gave us life and his grace in return. And that's who he's always been. And that's how I tell the story now. And I want to be better at telling the story that's the gospel, which is the story of Jesus, than I've ever been before. I want to tell it to my grandkids, and I have. I want to tell it to you. I want you to go tell the story. I want you to tell his story. And I want you to tell it like the Bible says it. He has reconciled the world to himself because he has never been separated from the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe upon him should not perish, but have life everlasting. That's the message. That's the gospel. Thank you for letting me tell it to you one more time. Amen. Would you stand with me? Now, if this is your first hearing of that version, uh, I pray your heart is leaping for joy. As you see how much he loves you. He will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. I didn't scare y'all when I got loud at that part, but I got pretty excited. <laughs> he does love you, and he will never forsake you. I thought I was too old to preach like that. I don't know where that come from, huh? As Howard says, the preacher showed up, okay? But uh, I would love to pray with you for any reason. If you want personal prayer, I'll be standing right down here. Uh, my elders are around. They're always watching in to help me pray. They'll pray for you um, if you want prayer for any reason or just to say hi. I, I would love that, okay? So can I just pray us out of here? Father, uh, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news of what you have done uh, and how you have responded in love to man. Thank you for never separating yourself from us, even though we separated ourselves from you. Thank you for delivering us from the delusion that's been in our own mind that we, like Adam, would hide from you, thinking that we could deal with our own problems, save our own self, heal our own affliction. We readily and openly admit we cannot save ourselves. We thank you for saving us. Thank you, Lord God, for never quitting, never relenting, never giving up. And even when we interfere with your plan and we produce Ishmael's instead of Isaac's, yet the blessing of the Lord is still present. You are an amazing God. You turn our messes into testimonies. And, oh God, you just really, you just make wonderful things out of the messes that I've made. And you still get glory in it. I've gone down some roads that you didn't want me to go on, but when I look to the left or right, just like those brothers on the road to Emmaus, you were there. Even when I was headed on the wrong direction and the wrong way. You're always there. Thank you for that, Papa. Let us know that you are our Savior, our Healer, our Deliverer. You're our Father. And we give you awesome praise for that. Our hearts are full this morning for your grace. I pray this in the wonderful, mighty, majestic, name of my Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. Love you, Papa. Amen. All right. We love you guys. Amen. God bless you.